Welcome to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. I'm Sherry DeGrippo. Ever wanted to step into the shadowy realm of digital espionage, cybercrime, social engineering, fraud? Well, each week, dive deep with us into the underground. Come here from Microsoft's elite threat intelligence researchers. Join us as we decode mysteries, expose hidden adversaries, and shape the future of cybersecurity. It might get a little weird, but don't worry. I'm your guide to the back alleys of the threat landscape. Welcome to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, a very special edition with Wes Drone, who I'll warn everyone now, just talking to him at all makes me crack up a lot because he is the bad cop to my good cop. Wes, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. <laughs> Always uh, happy to play bad cop. And yes, I, mean, I can't be the bad cop. You're the bad cop. <laughs> You're already laughing uncontrollably, so. I know, I'm sorry. It's going to be a good sesh here. Oh, I love a good sesh. Let me, okay, West Drone, you have a deep background in InfoSec, threat intelligence, detection engineering. You've been part of the intelligence community with law enforcement. You have tons of experience. You are a programmer developer, so you're like a software nerd too. You are kind of like the all-around InfoSec nerd. What is that like? Well, if you remember, Sherrod, when you and I first met... Mm -hmm. Years ago. I was on that CISO track, right? I know, I was, what a mistake. I was going to be at the CISO. And then I met you, and you <laughs> said, why don't you come join me in this crazy world of research? So yeah, I think that because of my experiences in government, then defending enterprises, and then in the vendor land, which I know you're so fond of, I have some unique perspectives. I've seen it from a couple of different angles. There's still many more angles that I've not seen it from, but InfoSec is, is definitely an interesting beast. It will not change in the near term. So walk me a little bit through your villain origin story. You were at one time a server in a restaurant, and then you got to actually finally be back of house because, no, wait, you were back of house. You were working the grill and you wanted to get front of house because that's where the money was, right? How do you remember these things? I remember everything. That's my superpower. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, kind of walk me how you went from that. I know you were in college. I know you did FBI. Walk me through your professional background. How'd you end up here? Where'd you come from? I often ask myself, how did I end up here, Sherrod? <laughs> As does every InfoSec professional at many times. So yeah, I, let's see, how far back do we want to go here? I don't know if we really need to talk about the restaurant, but I went to college and studied computer science and finished a degree in computer science. After that, I went and worked at a small company where I sort of did everything, jack of all trades, if you will. So I got my start pulling network wire, crimping network wire, mm -hmm. which I still to this day make interns do. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was funny. And so I did all of those things at that company. I did a lot of things with software, wrote a bunch of different software, both for websites. I set up their databases, their servers, all those things. For about six years, I was their sort of in-house IT. And for this company, less than 20 people, I went there for what was like a little startup project and did a bunch of other projects. I wanted to do something a little bit different and maybe a little bit exciting. And so at that point, that's when I thought, hey, I'll try to go work for the FBI. 
And about, I don't know, a year and a half or two years after sort of making that decision and applying, I found myself at Quantico. I was under the impression at the time that I was very much getting out of tech. I thought, I'm going to go work bank robberies and other things of criminal nature. Went through the academy. I met the director at the graduation ceremony. And he said, hey, well, what did you do before? And I said, oh, I was a software developer. And he said, oh, I know what you'll be doing. I did not at the time. Ouch. And then I arrived at my first office on the cyber squad where we worked mostly nation state cyber stuff before it was a thing in the private sector, really. And so, you know, I was there during like the, the mandate report, APT1 report and all of the things that have come after. So did my time at the FBI about five years and then was ready to sort of do something different and to be honest, move closer to home. And so I found a gig local in the St. Louis area where I started doing incident response and did a lot of different things at that job. Incident response, threat intelligence. I got to sit in with the red team on many engagements, pop a few shells, if you will. So it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of things that, that weren't so fun that turned out to be super valuable in the long term. We did a ton of risk management type stuff. So risk acceptances and all kinds of the other side of the house, like compliance and policy, things like that. Turns out that that actually benefited me quite a bit later on in my career. And then the other thing, we were in the middle of an agile transformation. So I got a ton of insight and training into JIRA and Confluence and And really all of the things when it comes to sort of DevOps and managing all those things. So it was a good experience, but they were going through some acquisition and I met you. So (laughs) then we got to work together for a little while. (laughs) And so that's when I jumped to the vendor space, right? And, you know, vendor's been really cool. The biggest thing about vendor is just that you have a bigger impact, right? So you don't just defend one company. You can defend hundreds or thousands of companies you know, or millions of users, right? And you can do it very quickly. So when I look back, you know, at the FBI, we were sort of defending people, but the latency of that was really long and drawn out. Cases took years to complete. And then in a a single corporation, you didn't have as much control, but then in the vendor space, you have sort of ultimate control and the largest impact. So it's not without its challenges, of course, but security is the business, whereas it's not always the business when you're sort of working at a corporation, right? So all that to say, lots of different experiences, but it's been a fun ride so far. Many more years to go. How long have you been at Microsoft? 11 months. Yeah, ultimate control. Wes was making fun of me because I made the intern crimp cables for absolutely no reason, really, because it was not integral to her role, but it was very weird to me to meet someone who said they never made a cable. You never put a crimp on a, you never crimped a cable? It's a rite of passage. That's crazy. So, Wes, what are you working on now? Like, what's your focus these days? What are the problems you're solving? Yeah, so I am part of the messaging and web research team here at Microsoft. So we're largely focused on messaging like email, maybe a little bit of Teams tossed in there. And then the rest of the team's also focused on some web threats. So they all really kind of go hand in hand these days since most messaging ends up with a URL and you end up on the web. Yeah. Anything lately that you really like? Any cool stuff happening out there? Lots of cool stuff happening, Sharon. I just said the other day, 
And I know you miss it. It's okay. It's okay. The fishing landscape has really changed, just completely changed, I would say, the last 12 months, maybe two years. It's really kind of ramping up. So the two biggest things are ChatGPT sort of democratizing this capability to write code. It's just wild. And then also what we saw with ransomware, right? And actors and how they went from just a single actor to sort of ransomware as a service, right? We see the same thing in the phishing landscape where we sort of see individual people or groups doing phishing and now they've made that a service, right? So what that's doing is it's allowing everyone to have better phishing capabilities than what they previously had. So think about geofencing or CAPTCHAs or, or any other sort of more advanced techniques that you might only see from top tier actors are now available more at scale. That all leads to a ton of activity and a, a sort of a fast pace sort of TTP sort of evolution in the space right now. So lots going on. It's crazy to think that fishing can still evolve. I thought, you know, maybe it would stop. I agree. <laughs> I don't see it slowing down. It's kind of wild, right? When you think about like, you know, there's like a handful of RFCs that govern how you can send a message from one server to another. And RFC 822, one of my yeah. favorites. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> and so I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, it's it seems like it would be relatively simple to secure. But I think as with anything that we try to secure, the rapid pace at which technology changes has caused us to sort of struggle to complete that, right? And technology is not slowing down. It is only moving forward at a faster pace of anything. So I don't think that we will solve phishing in the in the short term. You mentioned ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. And I want you to be really super honest and tell me what you use ChatGPT for. Everything. Use it for, do you really use it that much? I use it so much. So I was a bit of an ML AI holdout, if you will. And you could say that, you know, I wasn't really all in on it. I had tried it a few times. And I wasn't super impressed with ChatGPT 3. And you had encouraged me to go ahead and get a subscription. And I did. And so version 4, I use all the time. I use it to send my kids baseball coach emails. Yes. I use it to like write funny things that I send in text to my neighbors. I use it at work to like sort of summarize documents or if I need to like kind of go write little things just to make me a better writer, I use it for that. I use it for code. ChatGPT is really awesome for writing code. I do it mostly in the browser, but like I started playing with it in Copilot in VS Code. So yeah, it is really a completely life-altering technology, both for defenders and then as we've started to see attackers as well. I love that. Oh my God, I love that you say that because I feel like in my career, a lot of the people I've worked with and that I think you've worked with too, they will tell you that they're really good at certain things. Like you have some people on your team that are fantastic network detection engineers, specifically our friend Jack Mott, who's also going to be on the podcast this week. He's really good at that. We have all of these people that are good at malware, reverse engineering, that are good at protocols, but they'll tell you, I'm not a good programmer. They'll say, like, I don't write code. Oh, my code is bad. I am trying not to use curse words, which is what they always say. But like they say their code is crappy. And I feel like some of the development co-pilots and ChatGPT are giving confidence to security practitioners and defenders to write better code that they thought they weren't so good at before. 
I think so, right? I think a lot of times, you know, I've interviewed hundreds of people for InfoSec positions and I always ask really lightweight sort of coding questions. And what I always get is people are really hesitant to say, well, I don't really code, but I'm like, so you can look at some code on GitHub and you can maybe change it a little bit and get it to do the thing you need it to do. Yeah, okay, so you're an InfoSec coder. Like, that's like my definition of it, right? Yeah. And so if you can get that far, that means that you could probably copy and paste that code into ChatGPT and then tell it how you want it to change, right? And then it'll give you what you need. Or you could just straight off a prompt give you something. So it's an incredibly powerful tool. It's not infallible by any means. I, I will come out and tell you, I've tried to get it to write amazing Cousteau queries for me. It just won't. But that's okay. We have people for that for now. Maybe in the next version. And I see it getting better too. I see it getting better at things. So that leads me to ChatGPT, fallible, asking questions. We're now going to ask you trivia questions. Are you ready? Oh, no, that's for trivia questions. All right. This is multiple choice. Which of the following is a common technique used by malware to hide its presence on an infected system? A, stenography. B, rootkit. C, quicksort. D, SQL injection. So you're giving me like a little bit of traumatic flashbacks from computer science with the quicksort. Oh, good. And having to write quicksort in Java. Oh, it's just, that was really, really miserable. But yeah, it's it's B, rootkit. So yeah. That is correct. And also I, these questions were written by ChatGPT. Oh, so, fantastic. Yeah. Okay. This next one, you might not know this. I didn't know it, but it is pretty funny in my opinion, which malware is known for the ransom note, quote, oops, your files have been encrypted. Is that A, WannaCry, B, I love you, C, Zeus, or D, Stuxnet? I guess it can only be one of those, right? Did ChatGPT really write these? Yeah, and I didn't read them before. I'm reading them right now. Oh, It's a podcast. Oh, yeah, well, That's the point. Yeah, so have, that's the point. It's live. We're just making yeah. it live. Just making <laughs> it happen. F it. We're doing it live. So WannaCry would be the right answer then. Um, that is correct. It's WannaCry. What, it, what is WannaCry, Wes? WannaCry, it's this thing that made some people I know sort of famous that impacted yeah. the world. So it was ransomware that was deployed via vulnerability and it turned into a worm, basically. So without really getting into all the details. And yeah, it kind of went crazy. It was causing ransomware all over the globe until it was shut down when someone registered basically a, a kill switch Same. domain, which that malware was checking. And then it ceased. And it led to all kinds of crazy things changing after and many, many a story and book. So yeah, WannaCry was a fun time. It was pretty pivotal. I feel like it was sort of like the proto-ransomware landscape. And then it just mm -hmm. kind of peaked and then is on a plateau now with a never-ending ransomware events all around us. Yeah. I was defending an enterprise when that happened. And I remember, so if you think back to when that happened, right? So this is when Lockheed ransomware was like getting delivered in just droves, right? Like just millions and millions and millions of messages like every day. And Lockheed so, was an attachment. It was an email attachment and you clicked it and basically got it to run and it became ransomware in your system. Lockheed, I worked a lot of Lockheed and the ransomware cost for a Lockheed event was $300 in Bitcoin. Yeah, $300. exactly. And so we were working a ton of those phishing campaigns. And when I remember the morning that WannaCry was kind of going, we were starting to hear about it. 
And we just assumed there was phishing campaigns. And it took a while, many hours before we learned how it was spreading. And then, you know, it was like, that was a whole nother nightmare because large companies have lots and lots and lots of interconnections with other companies. And so then you're sort of like trying to figure out like, okay, is everything shut down? Is it locked down? And it was quite the fire drill. Thankfully, we didn't have any issues where I was at, but many were not so lucky and they spent a long time dealing with that. Yeah, that was a different time back then, a single machine. I'll tell you another memory, yeah. And I'll even toss out uh, my good friend, Ryan Campbell, who I used to work with at that job. We were sort of like an intelligence role. And I know, isn't it funny? Because I used to work with a Brian Campbell. So, you know, at that time, what happened was the email vendors had kind of gotten a hold of Lockheed and sort of this single machine sort of ransomware delivered via email. So really the advent and the push for everyone to have dynamic sandboxing of their email attachments and URLs kind of took care of that, right? And it fell to almost zero. There was a you know a few botnet takedowns and things like that. So, you know, we were like, hey, look, ransomware's dead. Yes, I actually wrote down that ransomware was dead at a paper one time. Wow. Because yeah, we did not think that they would start working together and basically crowdsource red team pen test tactics, right? But then we learned that that is that's exactly what they did. And so as a service was born. As a service was born. It was all the rage in Silicon Valley to do things as a service. Really, mm-hmm. when you think about ransomware as a service, it is a SaaS model. They could get VC if they pitched it right. Yeah. Just need a, a VC deck. I guess for my, I had some biases for my like FBI time. Like I didn't think that the criminals would trust each other as much mm-hmm. as is required, right? But turns out they've been quite successful. I also think that So the time that you and I are talking about is like 2015, 2016, 2017, Mm -hmm. when there were individual, for those of you that are new to the ransomware landscape, this massive ransoming of an entire company is the way things are now. The old way was a single machine. You just put ransomware on a human resources administrator or some IT guy's laptop and it's ransomed. It's encrypted. There's a big thing that says like, okay, your files are encrypted. And what happened was these people would take their machine like to their IT help desk and be like, help me. And IT would say, oh, yes, this is bad. We've seen this before. We're just going to issue you a new laptop so you can get back to work. All your stuff's in the cloud. Like, we got a backup somewhere. Like, you're cool. Let's just set you up a new laptop and send you on your way. And they were almost treating laptops at that time like they were stolen. Like, it was kind of like a well, shelve that thing, we'll deal with it later. Maybe we can re-image it, maybe we can't. But the reality is now is that it's not just one person in an organization that has a, a buggy machine, right? Like it was just kind of an IT problem. Now it's like this massive, we're taking out your entire business. Yeah, and leaking your files, right? Which was the next step in that evolution. Well, that's the next part. Yeah, it's like... We're going to shut you down and then we're going to extort you for even more stuff. Yeah, it's wild. There's been an entire evolution. I I remember it was probably 2012, 2013 when the first thing like they were just screen lockers, right? It would just sort of pop up and lock your screen and it would scare you with like an FBI warning or something and say, oh, you've been visiting the wrong websites. You have to go pay us Bitcoin or you're going to go to jail sort of thing. And it would just sort of, it was a really low level. It just locked the screen. And that's sort of like what I remember seeing first, right? And then we started seeing ransomware. 
I remember seeing some screen lockers on Android phones. Mm -hmm. That was a really big thing for a while. I remember lots of phone calls at the FBI office about, because people would call the FBI and I would be working at the incoming phone and they would ask us about like, is this real? And it's like, no, it's not real. You need to take your computer to someone to have it fixed, right? But yeah, it was about that time. And then it just kind of shifted, right? And it's just been this continual evolution for, I guess, you know, the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll have to see where we evolve to next. So speaking of evolution, Crimeware, APT, you have to choose one. Crimeware, APT. Yeah, which one do you want? You know, I, I have a love affair with both of them. So I would probably pick APT. What? Oh, you traitor. Are you serious? Well, I, well. Oh, yeah. Reconsider. It's <laughs> Reconsider, yeah. It's a difficult <laughs> choice. So I've worked a lot more cases or investigations or incidents, whatever you want to call them, on the nation state side. They tend to be a little bit more challenging. And I like a good challenge in that regards. But Crimeware also has a special place in my heart. It's not nearly as glamorized as APT work, but it probably has a much bigger impact on normal everyday people and companies. So we tracked a hundred different actors, like Crimeware actors in the past. So yeah, I don't know. It's hard. I find APT scarier. It makes me emotionally more upset than Crimeware, I think, which is, I've really been exploring my emotional and psychological need to focus on Crimeware over the past couple of years. And I think it's because ABT scares me, freaks me out. Hmm. Like, I don't like that. Yeah. I I can understand like criminal mindset, but like ABT is, that's serious business. It's a problem. Yeah. It's a big problem. It is. Maybe it's just because I worked it from inside the government, right? To me, it's just intelligence collection. They're just normal people who have a job to go collect information about, for the most part, right? Their adversaries or for policy decisions, things like that, right? There's a lot of, plenty of intellectual property theft that went along with that. I think the more interesting stuff is the, you know, like Stuxnet and the more, you know, destructive malware that we've seen over the years. But I don't know, I've never seen it to be, thought about it to be too super scary. But maybe it's because I've never really thought like, I'm not like, you know, a top tier target by any Mm. means. But I wouldn't think that you are either for most of these groups. Not me personally, but I like America. I live here. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cyber espionage has been like a a big thing. It's changed a lot in the last 10 years. But I don't think it's... I think, you know, you get into some of these like blended operations. I know there was a a news article about just the other day, I think, about some blended ops that were going on. So I think it's interesting. I think it's also, maybe it's a little terrifying just because of how much of our life continues to be digitized, Mm -hmm. right? Like literally everything is going to... I just thought to myself, like just yesterday, I was like, you know what? I really wish my fridge would just like know what groceries I was out of and would just go ahead and like make sure those got to my house. And I can remember many years ago thinking smart fridges were just like the dumbest thing in the world. Like, why would you want a smart fridge? Oh, yeah. And here we are. I've been trained into the matrix. Yeah, you're a matrix agent now. I'm sorry about that. Very cringe pill of you. I have a internet connected washer dryer and I have the app on my phone and I check my laundry status 
on my phone to see if my laundry is done. And that is the ultimate thing that, you know, a few years ago, I'd have been like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's ridiculous. But I had the same reaction to the concept of a wiki and the same reaction to the type of a phone with a camera on it. I thought these things are completely stupid. And now I use them every day. So yeah, we're the problem, me and you. We are. We are most certainly the problem. I think we'll only see that there will be more and more of that, right? And we've been around longer. Like if you think back just 20 years ago to like what a computer looked like, and then you think about what it's going to look like in 20. I'm just at this point now where I'm like, wow. Mm. Especially with ChatGPT and sort of this sort of, you know, AI revolution that's going on. Wow. In 20 years, it's going to be a lot different. I love the AI as a consumer. I'm all over it. As a user, I'm deep in it. Like I want it all the time. Things happen and I've, I know that I'm becoming sort of adept at using it as a tool because stuff will happen and I'll say, you know what, I'm going to chat GPT this. Like, this is a weird story, but I got a weird letter in the mail that said that I had wrecked a rental car. And I most certainly had not wrecked a rental car. I don't rent cars. I Uber. I'm not a good driver. So me wrecking is a problem, but I know that. So I don't rent cars. Oh, you've been in a rental car with me before, Wes. Did I wreck that rental car? <laughs> You, you did not hit anything or person while I was in the rental car with but you. But I'm not um, a good driver. You can say that. I, I don't care. I did not think your driving was bad, but you were notorious for saying that you're a bad, no, driver. I'm not a good driver. So I'm just going to take your word for it. And I do recall you, you know, having a few fender mm-hmm. benders and spending a lot of time at the dealership. But, mm-hmm. you know, little, other than that. In here and there. Yeah, so I did not rent a car because I know better than that. I don't really rent cars because I know that I'm not a good driver, and especially in a new car and all this. And I was like, you just send us $400. And I was like, I most certainly will not. In fact, I'm going to ask ChatGPT what the laws are on this. And I just got into ChatGPT and was like, do I have to pay this debt? They think, and ChatGPT, he told me no. So then he created, I'm going to ChatGPT as a guy for me. He created me letters to send back to this debt collection company that were like formatted with all the things it needed to say according to the laws of where I live. I sent it off on a registered certified mail via like a e-fax type of service. So now my point is when things happen now, when I need something, I'm like, I don't need a lawyer. I need to get on chat GPT for 20 minutes. And I do that. Like I needed to plan a party. Oh my gosh, I need to make a grocery list. Let me think. No. ChatGPT, I want to have a party. Make me a grocery list. Make me a liquor store list. Give me the recipes for the grocery list that you made me. And never plan a party again. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's really good at making lists. Like really good. It is. Yeah. I have it make lists for me all the time. I love that thing. So yes, it's impressive. When the machines enslave us, do you think that they will use this podcast as evidence that we are good humans, that we're cool or... Good humans or worthy of enslavement? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> oh, I shouldn't say so I... many nice things. ChatGPT, we love you. I think we're a little ways off from the machines taking over. I don't think that's going to happen right away. But hopefully, I mean, I made the comments that to a friend the other day, I said, look, in 10 years, we're all going to have a personal assistant. It's going to be a virtual one. It's going to be basically chat GPT or something that's with you all day, every day, and it's connected to all your things and you just tell it what to do and it will go and, and do these tasks for you. 
I don't think they'll be sentient by then, but we'll see. I think we're going to have to have some major breakthroughs in compute and power generation in the near future to kind of stay on the same path that we're on. But maybe ChatGPT can help us out with those. If we talk about compute and power generation, if we look at Moore's Law, I think we're doing fine. If we can Mm -hmm. become a Tardashev level one civilization and harness the power of our star, or just below the output of our own star, we'd be pretty good. And I think we can do that. We're like a Tardashev like negative 0.2 right now. We can get there. Just keep working on it. And then the singularity. It's great. You just took this podcast like full nerd, just like yeah, all the way in. That's why you're here. <laughs> you have a favorite thread actor you like to work on? Uh, not these days. Emotet's gone. Um, Quackbot's gone. Trickbot, don't see it. I know. Who's out there? Dark Gate's out there. It's all ransomware. Where are the downloaders? Where's the keyloggers? They're still there. It's all there. They're just not getting the news coverage that they deserve. Probably not. There are more important threat actors out there. I did enjoy Emotet, although that's a tough actor, right? It's kind of like being a sports fan and your team just stops playing for six months out of the year. What do you do, right? So yeah, I think that I've enjoyed tracking a lot of different actors in my career, some of which I can't talk about or name, others that you and I are both aware of. But yeah, I think that I enjoy actors that do things that are that are novel. And I, I don't throw that word around lightly. It's actually like a, it's a no. No, you hate that word. I really do despise that You've word. You've said many times you hate the word novel and you hate the word sophisticated. I've read your well, blog notes. I, I, I've I, seen you edit blogs. I've seen the comments on the side panel that are like, don't say sophisticated. Don't say novel. I've seen you say that. So that's because they're relatively rare, but we tend as professionals to use them as descriptors of activity quite often. And so I do feel like there are, in fact, novelties. There are unique TTPs, things that are really well done, well thought out and executed on. And I think working on those types of things that challenge us as defenders to push ourselves to think about things in a different way are the most interesting, right? What's an example? So let's say like, you don't want to just look at the same like really basic thing happen over and over again, right? So when you get to sort of watch or learn about sort of a, a long TTP or a long campaign that results in something with a lot of unique things, I think it's interesting. There's a, I wouldn't say it's a mutual respect so much, but there's definitely this, you know, defenders watch attackers, right? And they do things that are super clever sometimes for all the wrong reasons, of course. And attackers watch defenders, right? And they would say the same. So it's just a big game right now. Poor games, right? And that's kind of trying to make you laugh with my super old 80s reference. That's not that old. Oh, geez, am I that old? But I think that that leads also to the better defenders are, the more the threat actors have to pivot. And Mm -hmm. ultimately watching threat actors pivot is fascinating. Watching, I think that we all kind of agree, especially on the crime side, but in the APT world too, there's this concept of like, they're only going to do what they have to do. We don't, typically see threat actors doing like the most like we don't typically see them being extra because they don't need to so in order to watch you know when you're poking at them in order to watch them kind of dance you gotta you know they're gonna do something different when you put in good defensive measures well they have to change what they're doing and they keep changing what they're doing until they get what they want and that means that Mm -hmm. we have to keep changing what the defense landscape looks like too yeah absolutely you know one of the things that i 
never thought about before coming to Microsoft was that as defenders, we were sort of used to, okay, new technique, new thing, go write SIG for thing and then deploy, right? Microsoft, the platform is, is so big and used so broadly, right? When you make a detection that actually goes to the entire platform, it invokes change very quickly. And it's this idea of sort of like thinking about like where and when you sort of like put in different detections. It's not a space that I had really like considered before because in all my other roles sort of, you know, when you write a single rule, it didn't have as big of a broad impact, right? But it does here. And so it's kind of brought this whole different level of sort of strategic thinking about actor TTPs. And you talk about like actor shaping, like how can you get the actors to sort of go in the direction that you want them to go so that you sort of can offer a good defense for a while. And there are some actors that are really good that do more than they have to. That's just actors that are working for really large governments, you know, and they want to sort of be stealth. They don't use those capabilities more broadly. But yeah, it's just another day. I think every day is crazy. I've worked at Microsoft, I guess, seven months now, eight months, and you're almost at a year. And it's definitely wild. It's definitely massive impact, like you said. It's a lot of control and capability. And it's also something that I feel good about because ultimately we're just protecting a massive, massive amount of people at Microsoft. And I love that feeling of, you know, my dad uses a Windows computer, right? It's like, that's important. Mm -hmm. People on all kinds of platforms, on all kinds of clouds, on all kinds of devices, Microsoft touches it. Like, it's so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's product suites that people depend on for work and school and home and everything. And video gaming, which, you know, my dad always reminds me, I work at Xbox. So it's... Uh... <laughs> right, right. I was I was going to mention it when you were listing everything off, right? And, and I think that's the the allure for me too, right? So, you know, when you can sort of piece it together, right? The, as the industry is sort of consolidated, right, into different platforms, mm-hmm. you know, Microsoft has this platform and, you know, as a researcher, you want to be able to use data insights and expertise from different parts of that platform, right? And that's, that's been one of the coolest things about coming here to Microsoft is just seeing that it's not like I can see everything, you know, I don't, it's not the eye of Sauron, like I can't see like every single thing that happens, right? But we can work with different teams throughout Microsoft security research to gain those insights, to share that knowledge, to kind of see like what they're seeing and work together to sort of come up with a more holistic sort of picture and then solution on what we're able to sort of do to make the attackers change and do it all over again. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question. This is a personal question. It's not a trivia question. If you could have telemetry access to only one of the following, which would you choose? Email, network, endpoint, cloud. All right, this is like a trick question though, right? Because I choose network, I also get email and I get part of cloud. So it depends on what I'm doing. So... If I was defending an organization again, I'd probably pick endpoint. If I was doing research, I'd probably pick email. And if I was, I don't know, I just don't think cloud's there yet. Not yet. It's close, but not yet. Well, guess what? You got them all here. (laughs) I know. I I know. That and the video game telemetry. Wes, let me thank you again for coming on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. It was great to talk to you. I want to have you back to talk more about 
your background, what you're seeing on the landscape, threat actor movements, and all those things. So I hope we'll have you back in a couple weeks. Thanks for coming on. It's great to actually get to work with you. Yeah, it was awesome, Sharon. I appreciate the ping and we'd love to come back. Thanks, Wes. Thanks for joining us on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Email us with your ideas at tipodcast at microsoft.com. Every episode will decode the threat landscape and arm you with the intelligence you need to take on threat actors. Check us out msthreatintelpodcast.com for more and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. This week on Uncovering Hidden Risks, we explore how you can use a cloud-native application protection platform to solve different challenges. Be sure to listen in and follow us at uncoveringhiddenrisks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.